Today's reading is from Philippians 2, uh, verse 5 to 11. In your relationships with one another, <clears throat> have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. Well, the passage I've been asked to preach on this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And this is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament. In one grand sweep, it unfolds the whole story of our salvation through Jesus Christ. It begins in the sphere of eternity with the divine nature of the Son of God. It brings us down to earth and then his birth as a human being and the life that he lived, taking him eventually to the cross. And then it finishes by exalting him back to the heavens and to the right hand of God, there to sit in glory and in power. And the focus of all this passage is the person of Jesus Christ. And it begins with the divine nature of Jesus Christ, existing in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the phrase existing in the form of God, Paul is using a Greek verb which means that he was sharing in the very essence of God. That there was something unalterably essential about Jesus Christ that could be identified with God. And that's an important point because so often people talk about Jesus, they admire Jesus, they are quite prepared to see him as one out of the ordinary person. They say he was a great teacher. Look at his parables, look at what they see, we can see in the Gospels. They say he was obviously a person of great personal charisma. And perhaps he was someone who performed great healings in the course of his ministry. But still, he was just an ordinary human being, albeit that he was an outstanding person. But the New Testament will have nothing of that. It always begins its assessment of Jesus Christ by looking at his divine nature. I'm sure you can recall the passage from John chapter 1, which we have at Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Paul is saying the same thing here existing in the form of God. That is where we are to begin our understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ 
that he shares in the very essence of God. But then he goes on to speak of the way in which the Son of God comes from that exalted status of sharing in the power and privilege of divine splendor and glory to come and share in our likeness. Christ Jesus, who, in the, who is being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that phrase, something to be grasped, is very interesting. Behind it is the Greek word harpagmos. And some of you may have heard of Tom Wright, the great New Testament scholar. Well, he gives, in his book, The Climax of the Covenant, he gives ten interpretations of harpagmos, which you'll be glad to know I'm not going to share with you this morning. And then after 43 pages of exploring all this, he decides that the best translation for harpagmos is a thing to be taken advantage of. Christ Jesus, though he was in the nature of God, did not consider his equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. In other words, simply because the Son of God shared in the very power and privilege of being divine, he did not use that as a reason to say, not me. I can't go to earth. I can't identify with humanity. I can't go through the process of being born into a human nature. But rather, it was in him to say, I will go there. I will be the one who comes to earth and embraces humanity and brings them back to God the Father. And why did he do that? Because he loves you and me. Because he loves humanity. And I don't think it's easy to love humanity, do you? Someone once said that the strongest indication that there's intelligent life on Mars is that they have never bothered to come to Earth. <laughs> Would you come to Earth if you had a choice? Well, the Son of God had a choice, and he came to Earth. Why did he do that? Because he was moved by compassion and pity and love for us, for us human beings in the state that we are, languishing and lost without God. R.S. Thomas has a wonderful poem called The Coming, which takes us into the inner being of God as he makes that enormous decision that the Son of God is to be born in human likeness. And I'd like to read the poem to you. And God held in his hand a small globe. Look, he said, the sun looked. Far off, as through water, he saw a scorched land of fierce color. The light burned there, crusted buildings cast their shadows, a bright serpent, a river, uncoiled itself radiant with slime. On a bare hill, a bare tree saddened the sky. 
Many people held out their thin arms to it as though waiting for a vanished April to return to its boughs. The sun watched them. Let me go there, he said. Let me go there, he said. That was the welling up of divine compassion in the very being of the Son of God as he looked upon us in our lostness and our plight and his longing to come and be among us, to be identified with us. And so on the first Christmas day in Bethlehem in a stable, there is born a child who is the Son of God, become one of us. And let's be sure of that, that he did become one of us. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Just as there are people who say that Jesus was just an ordinary man of outstanding gifts, but no more, there are others who say the life that we read about in the Gospels is that of someone who is pretending to be human, that actually he was some kind of supernatural figure, he had supernatural powers, he was only just pretending to be amongst us, and that when the Gospels record him as tired or hungry, then those things are not actually his experience. He was slightly above all that. Not so. He was made in human likeness. And one of the reasons that many people in Christian history and throughout the church have held the figure of Mary to be very important is because she is the guarantee of the human flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. We know that he was born of Mary, that therefore he is one of us. He shares in our human nature. And so, as we look at Jesus Christ, we have to hold together this tension of the fact that he has come from the heavenly places, that he is in possession of a divine nature, and yet at the same time, he has been born into human likeness and is as human flesh and blood as you and I are. A lovely story told from the early 20th century of a man called Cardinal Piffle, slightly unfortunate name, but anyway, Cardinal Piffle was the cardinal in Vienna. And the story runs that uh, one day a young girl who was about to become a servant in a household in Vienna was on the train traveling to her new location. And she was a very devout Catholic, and she heard to her great excitement that Cardinal Piffle was going to be on the train. And she thought, wow, I'm going to have the chance to see this great leader, and I can't wait to sort of admire him. He is bound to have a lot of priests around him. He'll probably be in, in, in grand robes, and I'll be able to admire him quietly from the shadows of the station platform. Well, when she stepped off the train in Vienna, she looked down the, the platform, and she wondered who amongst the crowd could be the cardinal. And she couldn't see anybody who could fit her mental picture. And so she was rather disappointed and stood there with her big bag next to her, and suddenly, an elderly gentleman in a long black coat and a black hat whispered to her, My dear, would you like me to 
help you with that bag. It must be very heavy. And she said, oh, that's very kind of you. And so the two of them set off out of the station and up the steep hill to the house where she was going to be located. And when he got to the front door, he put the bag down and he smiled and said, there you are, I hope you'll be very happy in your new work. And he disappeared. And the next morning, that young girl went to the cathedral because she wanted to attend high mass. And she was there in the congregation as the organ swelled up and as the procession came down the main aisle, the, the crucifer and the acolytes and the choir and then all the clergy. And at the back of it, the figure of the president of the Eucharist with the cope and mitre on. And she thought, oh, what a beautiful, magnificent sight. And then as that coped figure got to the front of the church, bowed to the altar and turned to face the congregation, I'm sure you can guess the sequel. He was the elderly man who had walked beside her and carried her bag. And she was just thrilled and thought, crumbs, the cardinal, that great leader of the church, was prepared to walk alongside me and talk to me and carry my bag. And she suddenly had a double take on this man. He was there in all the glorious context of that cathedral and all its music and all its beauty. And yet he was also that humble figure who had walked alongside her. And that's how we must see Jesus. Yes, he has the glory of God's eternal beauty. But he comes also and walks alongside us in humility as someone who shares in our very human nature. And it's very important that we hold those two things together and that we see that that is how God works in the world. God doesn't work by breaking open the heavens and dazzling us with his presence and a sense of his commandments. God works quietly, unobtrusively, in the midst and in solidarity with us and specifically in the person of Jesus. But having reached that point of speaking of the Son of God becoming human amongst us, Paul almost immediately takes us hurryingly along to the cross. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Isn't that strange? Isn't that unexpected? Surely. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about the eternal Son of God, full of compassion and love for humanity. We've been talking about his generosity in giving himself to us, in coming to share that love, to embody that love, as it were, to put his arm around us with the love of God and to say, let me take you home to your eternal Father. We see him in the Gospels living the perfect human life, always generous, always kind, always giving of himself to people in whatever their circumstances. And yet we read he's crucified. Why is that? Well, do you know Plato, one of the great Greek philosophers who lived long before Jesus came, wrote in one of his books, if ever a perfect man comes to earth, he will be crucified. How did he know that? Because he knew human nature. He knows what we are made of, that we are both darkness and light. 
We love to give people the impression that we're all sweetness and light. And yet we know there's a dark side to us. There's a sinister side to our human nature that can be cruel and destructive and deeply selfish. And therefore, when a perfect person comes and lives among us, when we see in them the purity and the goodness and the graciousness of God, we feel exposed, we feel threatened, we are uncomfortable. And therefore, we want to extinguish that light we want to get rid of that person. And so Jesus is drummed out of the city of Jerusalem, pinned to a cross and done away with. And we can see the conflict beginning on the first Palm Sunday. One of the great all-age talks I've done in the past is, suppose Jesus had come into Jerusalem on an elephant. Suppose Jesus had come into a, a, a Jerusalem on a stallion. It would all have represented something else. But he came in on a donkey and it was a deliberate choice. Because a person entering a city on a donkey comes as a man of peace. And he was saying to Jerusalem, peace, let there be peace in this city. Whereas in fact, all the leaders of the religious and political establishment were bent on one thing, hatred of the Romans. They were bent on violent rebellion. They wanted conflict. They wanted to throw off the Roman overlordship and gain their freedom and their identity again as the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying to them, no. What you must do is seek the way of peace and wholeness and harmony. And so right from the start, there's a conflict. And they have the power, the worldly power, to destroy him. And so they take him to the cross and execute him. And as it were, say, job done. He's gone. Now we can get on with what we want to do and we don't have to listen to his jarring voice calling us to a different way. And it's the same with all of us. There's a Caiaphas and a Pilate and those other figures of high priests in all of us. And when we hear Jesus calling us to peace and harmony, there's part of us that says, no, I don't want that. I want my own way and I'm going to assert myself and drive myself forward along my own path and do it the way I want, not your way. And so Jesus is done to death on the cross. And it seems as though it's all over. It seems as though he's been defeated. It seems as though the message, the demonstration of God's love that he had brought to earth is completely wiped out. But not so. I remember seeing once a cartoon of the cross. It was just the shape of the cross on a small hill. And on top of it, it had a sign to be continued. And that's right, isn't it? The story of Jesus does not end at the cross. The story of Jesus is to be continued, as Paul reminds us in this passage. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, there comes the resurrection, and after the resurrection, the ascension, and the exhortation of Jesus to the very throne of God. 
where he is exalted and known as Lord. And that is highly significant. In the Old Testament, the title Lord is reserved for God alone. Only God is ever referred to as Lord. And he's referred to as Lord because he is the creator and he is the controller of all things. No one else has the right to the title. But now, mind-blowingly, in the New Testament, we have devout Jews looking at Jesus, hearing the story of Jesus, following the story of Jesus, and then saying, He is Lord. He is to share in the very divinity and power and glory of God. In the book of Acts... Jesus is described as Savior four times. He is described as Lord 96 times. So what was the message of the early church about? It was about a Lord, yes, who had come and embraced us in our brokenness, but a Lord who was now king over all things. The most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make all the enemies your footstool. And why did they use that? Because it begins by referring to God. The Lord. That's God. Said to my Lord. Who's that then? Well, it's Jesus. That's who it is. It's Jesus sitting next to him on the throne. And he says to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Jesus is Lord. And that's a very important truth that we need to keep hold of. I remember a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, who was a priest in South Wales. And it was a very difficult parish. All kinds of problems. The building was practically falling down. He, he said, every time I took a wedding, I had a bucket in between the, the man and the woman because the water fell down right at that particular point. So they'd be taking their vows across this dripping bucket, you know. And he said, whenever you went out to try and share the gospel with people, they, they, they just didn't want to know. There was a kind of concrete indifference. And he said, I got to the point of total exhaustion, and I began to go into a trough of depression. And I began to wonder, what's it all about, and is it worth carrying on? And he said, I was in that state for weeks and months. And I was very, very downhearted. And then on Ascension Day, I was walking down to the church, and as I was approaching it, they were playing on the bells, the tune to a hymn. And as I listened to the tune, I began to put the words to it. Now above the sky, he's king. And as I did that, he said, everything suddenly changed. I suddenly realized that all the anxieties that I had about converting people, about keeping the church going, about being worthy as a minister of the gospel, were not my headache. They belong to him because he's in charge and he's the king and he's the Lord. And I was able to pass over my burdens to him. And it transformed everything. And it's the same for you and me. 
that when the problems come tumbling into our lives, when we feel that everything's on top of us, when we can't cope and we're not able to have the strength to go on, the truth we need to remember is that Jesus is Lord. He has all the power of God, all the authority of being divine. He shares the throne of God. And no matter what might hit us, whether it's illness or sorrow or trouble, he is above it and beyond it. Nothing is greater than his love. He showed us that on the cross. Everything that could be thrown against him, everything that could possibly destroy his love was there at the cross. And it did not overcome him because he rose from the tomb and is alive and free in our world today. So take that truth to heart. Jesus is Lord. And on that high note, Paul has reached the climax and the conclusion of this great outpouring of adoration and celebration of who Jesus is and how much Jesus has loved us and given himself to us. But finally, as we leave this passage and complete our exposition of it, Let's just remember that he had a very practical purpose in writing it. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and as he brought their attention to Jesus, he was writing to a church that had troubled relationships. He knew there had been clashes. He knew there had been divisions in the congregation there. And he's trying to say to them, as you look at your divisions... Now lift your eyes to Jesus. Set him in your sights. Allow him to be the source and inspiration of healing and peace and harmony. As you think of him coming and restoring our humanity, so think how that restoration must begin in the church. And if any of you need to hear that message, then take the opportunity to respond to him. Let's set Jesus in our sights. Let's open our hearts to him and rededicate our lives to him. Let's think of the generosity of what he did for us and let that generosity melt any hardness that might be in our hearts so that we can receive the refreshment and renewal of his spirit. Let's pray that what Jesus has done for us he may also do in us. And let's be sure that overarching our personal lives and overarching the life of our church, there is clearly just one great truth. Jesus is Lord. And no power at work amongst us, no power at work in our lives can ever be greater than that authority and power that he has as Lord. And as we let that thrill our hearts, as we let that shed light into our lives and the life of the world, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus who came among us and remains among us, but also occupies the throne of God, this Jesus is Lord of all. And as we think of that, And as we respond to that with joy, let's take the opportunity to surrender ourselves afresh to him.
And echoing the words of the Apostle Thomas, let's each of us say in the service this morning, my Lord and my God. Amen. Let's allow that amazing truth then to shed light on our personal lives and the life of Christchurch, that Jesus is Lord. Let's just be quiet a moment and allow God to speak into our lives and pour His Spirit into our hearts. So let's continue responding in song. If you're able, would you please stand? I live to serve 
your majesty I live to serve your majesty I live to serve your majesty you please be seated and we're going to continue in prayer Okay, well, good morning, everybody. We're going to continue in that spirit of worship and prayer this Palm Sunday. Um, you'll notice on the side of the aisles, you'll have some little green palms and also some pens. And I'd love it if you just took this opportunity to say thank you and to praise God for the things that he has been faithful to you in. 